You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. How is everybody doing today? I hope you're all well. In the studio today, we have Angela Mansell, Managing Director at Mansell Build, one of the UK's longest established and most experienced specialist subcontractors. I'm going to labour that word specialist because I've already been told off by Angela once today for, for, for saying just subcontractor. So specialist subcontractor in the field of SFS, plastering, partitioning, dry lining, rendering, much, much more that I'm sure Andrew is going to tell us all about. I am delighted as an ex-specialist subcontractor myself to have another specialist-focused episode for the second week in a row. And Angela, it's been a while getting hold of you, but here we are. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Yes, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And this is what your... You were you were once a podcast virgin. This is now your third in three weeks or something. It so is, we're yeah. expecting high I, levels here. I am um, well. No, don't be expecting too much. But you know what you'll get is um, <laughs> honesty. You'll hopefully get some authenticity, and you will get an insight into me and our business. Honesty and authenticity. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think that's what construction Fantastic. needs. I think that's what's missing. <laughs> Absolutely. And when we chatted beforehand a few months ago, I was excited by probably the authenticity and, and the honesty which we had, the candor that we had our conversations to X or as an X specialist subcontractor myself, I felt some of the pains that you were describing to me. And I want to kind of get into that today. We're going to talk about how main contractors collaborate from the perspective of a subcontractor, a specialist subcontractor. See, I'm doing it again. She's she's getting angrier and angrier with me. Uh, so I've given a bit of an introduction to you in the business, Angela. I'm sure you can do a far better job. Just tell us about you, your experience, and about Mansell Build. Mansell Building Solutions has been established for over 30 years. Mansell's always been in our name, but my dad founded the business back in the 90s. And he started off as your traditional plastering contractor. Um, And he was always mindful of there's nothing that's more certain than change in the world. And so he was always progressive and ahead of his time. So he very quickly transformed the business from a plastering contractor into a dry lining contractor, into an SFS infill contractor. And then he made the specialist, move. Specialist, specialist here. Angela, I've just got four. I'm going to mark these down. I think we're at about four, four now. That was four contractors, not specialists. Well, yeah, we're still a contractor. We're never a sub. Sub always kind of feels like you're kind okay. of really unimportant, bottom of the food chain, subservient, play no role, have things done to you. Like if you're sub, you know. Um, anyway. Oh, so, I'm yeah. getting schooled here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so my, my, my dad founded the business and, you know, he came at things from the traditional on-site perspective. He did move us into the off-site arena. And we started engaging with light gauge steel frames. And that's where SFS took us into. Um, We now operate in a 50,000 square foot 
factory in the heart of um, one of the Manchester boroughs in Bolton in Horwich so we're part of the you know the greater Manchester 11 and our business has evolved my dad passed away back in 2018 and the business has has evolved um, as me and my sister have taken over the ownership and leadership of the business along with a couple of other directors and you know we're evolving into something that is looking at the world and is looking at some of the problems that we're facing sort of in terms of delivery of buildings, the way things are done and why things are done the way that they're done. Um, and in particular, there's a focus around housing and spaces that people live in, from care homes to apartments to houses to student accommodation. And, and just looking at different ways that those conundrums and quicker housing, better quality housing, how that can be achieved and how that can be achieved locally. So that is really driven by a bit of a, a kind of a mantra that goes local homes for local people by local people so yeah that's that's the the basis of the business um i've been involved in the business for over 20 years now i started out after uni i left manchester uni with a history degree which is really useful in construction um i left Manchester <laughs> uni great though i'm a big fan of history yeah um and i went to work in the travel industry and my experience in the travel industry was somewhat short-lived as in 2001 the planes hit the twin towers and i was working for air tools plc at the time and my job became very precarious in the sales and marketing function um i was re-interviewed for my job three times secured it every time but decided that my future wasn't necessarily in travel and and leisure because of um the insecurity and uncertainty and it was at that point i'd recently got married i'd taken out a mortgage so you know had to have a job had bills to pay it was that at that point my dad said you know maybe there's something you can come and do in my business so his business was growing and he invited me to join the business to look after procurement so he was buying potentially a million pounds worth of materials a year there wasn't a huge amount of control over what was happening there and he said you know come in and and sort of change that if you can save your salary in the first year it's been worth employing you Um, and this was from a, a guy that had said to me when I was sort of early teens Um, When we talked about the future and what I was going to do, he actually said to me that he didn't think construction was any place for women and that he could never see me working in the industry. Really? Yeah. I was going to ask you, because, you know, we've talked about this before with many guests on the show, you know, that for most people or for a lot of people, from my experience, who end up in construction, it's usually because of a family root in construction. I feel relatively uh, unusual in that I came into construction with no one that I know in construction. I was kind of completely new to it, just saw an advert in a paper for a trainee QS and did it. But I often hear a lot of stories about, you know, oh, my dad was this or my mum was that and I ended up in construction because of that family tie. But I, was, so I wanted to ask you, your journey is quite unique, but it sounds like your dad didn't think that construction was a a home view how do you feel about that now in reflection well I think it was you know I think it was more of a a sort of a protectionist sort of side that came out of him I don't think it was the whole issue around you know women couldn't cope with construction or couldn't get on in construction or or whatever I think he just saw certainly in the 80s you know you look at 70s and 80s and he just saw a world that was dirty it was dark it was you know full of the sort of the vernacular of of the time and you know construction sites at that point were of 
their time. And, you know, it would have been an uncomfortable place for a woman to be. I think that was more what he meant rather than, you know, women should be chained to the sink and, you know, this is no this is no work for women. And I think as I joined the business, what he he did actually say to me, you know, I'm seeing more and more women, I'm meeting more and more women, you know, female QSs in particular, that's where you started to see, you know, females begin to pop up in the industry. And some of those early groundbreakers, you know, they did pave the way for people like me, because my dad picked his head up and sort of thought, well, actually, this is changing. And could I see my daughter now working in this industry? Yes, I probably could. So I think that in itself demonstrates the change and the shift in the sort of maybe 20 years that he'd been involved. But as you said, you know, I have a family connection because my dad was in the industry, but he didn't. He was just like you. He um he got a job in the bank when he left school and wouldn't conform and, and in the and in the sort of you know sixties when he was working and um, wouldn't have his hair cut, wanted to listen to the Rolling Stones, and so got asked to leave the bank. And as he was going home on his way, he sounds just like my dad. <laughs> does he? Very similar. Yeah, they, my dad was in a bank and got told to to skedaddle as well. So as he was on his way home to tell his mum that he didn't have a job, he was he lived in Charlton. So he got off the bus and he noticed a sign on a door on a building site, um, trainee QS wanted. So rather than go home without a job, he knocked, on, he knocked on the door at what was Withington Hospital in Manchester, which is obviously now a huge kind of redevelopment site and apartments and all sorts are on it. He knocked on the door and, and he helped build the hospital. He, he trained as a QS and that's how he got into construction. Well, there you go. That is yeah. interesting, isn't it? Now, we're going back to our first conversation, and I kind of touched on it briefly at the start because um, the authenticity and the honesty that you showed me in that initial conversation made me think, oh, I definitely want to record a show with Angela. One of the things you said to me, and this is sticking with that gender point, was, and it really stuck with me, was you said, I genuinely think... There is too many men in construction and this slows the pace of change. That was a few months ago but when he said that to me. How do you reflect on that statement now? Like, I'm sure you feel kind of the same. It hasn't changed much. But what do you think of that now, me reading it back to you? You know, I think the world, you know, it is diverse, isn't it? You know, like, I don't even want to get onto the issue of gender fully. But, you know, my perception is is half the world is men and half the world is women. And so we are in a male-dominated industry that's missing out on a huge chunk of half the population and what they can bring to the table. And women bring something different to the table. And so I think it is a remiss of a sector that is really struggling, that, that needs to change, that needs to do things differently, that keeps talking report after report after report, talks about all the things we need to do and then we don't do them and I just sort of sit there and wonder whether you know part of the problem with changes it's uncomfortable chances are people some elements of whoever sat around the table might end up losing out and just with the way men perceive things and the way men I don't know it's like schoolboys in a playground that's the adage that I use I see a lot of schoolboys in a playground seem to play out in construction and I just think women handle situations differently. Yeah, I do. And so I think because women look at things differently, I think, you know, 
if you had to go down the EQ route and start discussing emotional emotional intelligence, I think, you know, a people-centric view of the world rather than a project-centric view of the world. Um, I think women just bring something different to the table, have a different take on things. And you know what? If there was more people higher up the chains, sat around board tables, there were more women, you might just see things moving a bit quicker. I think it's well proven, isn't it? Yeah. Research in other sectors, research about how uh, diversity in thought and diversity in voices around the table, whether it's around the board table, around a project board table, whether it's around the construction sector table, it just brings benefits. I completely agree with you on that. And um, the more diversity of thought we have, the better right? As a, as an industry. And I think we're starting to already, you know, if you go back to what you were saying about your dad in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and where his mentality was, where the mentality of the sites probably were versus where they are now, it's uh, a whole shift change, isn't it? Whether or not the, cha- the pace of change is quick enough is a debate to be had, isn't it? But we're kind of going to talk today about our shared experiences we're going to lean far more into yours as a specialist contractor and how main contractors collaborate right from our perspective as specialists so you said one thing at the top of the show you said you know subcontractor or specialist feels like you're at the bottom of the food chain that is a feeling that resonates with my experience I was a subcontractor and that is just something that happened or a feeling that you had all the time. What challenge does that bring to you as a business, first and foremost? I think the problem that we have is it's hand to mouth because everything is driven. We are contractors, we're specialist contractors. And because everything is driven through a contractual relationship, then everything that we do is driven by that contract and that project. So there is no kind of continuity of work. There is no certainty in pipeline. There is no certainty in commercials and finance. Just the level of of exposure that you have as a business and then the level of uncertainty that stops you planning and investing and all of the things you want to do but you are shackled by what does my order book look like right now and you know you're lucky if you are six months out I think on an order book as a as a specialist in the world I operate in um you might get to 12 months but but so to be trying to plan for sort of three to five years, but not really know where your revenue streams are going to come from, but you know you're going to get some revenue. That's a really challenging place to be as the owner and leader of a business. Yeah, I think that's a problem. You know, I work now in a construction technology business, trying to sell technology to main contractors, subcontractors. And one of the factors behind the industry's slow uptake. We're ranked 21 out of 22 for all of the sectors of industry in the world and and 21 out of 22 in terms of how digitised we are. So we're not very digitised by comparison to other uh, sectors, is that it is really hard, whether you're a main contractor or a specialist contractor, to have that pipeline because that's the nature of the industry. It's project-based, isn't it? It's hard to get into frameworks or build those long-lasting pipelines but it couldn't it's it's no harder and at no face harder felt than as a specialist because your pipelines are even shorter your con- contracts are even shorter than those main contractors do you think that main contractors recognize how much of a challenge that is for specialists like yourself because 
listening to you speaking there, you think, okay, if I was the main, if I'm the main character who's placed the order, you think, well, you have got certainty. I've given you an order for five hundred thousand pounds. You've got certainty that that's going to be executed over the next six months. So I'm not quite understanding your issue. I think it's broader than that. I think. Uh... I don't think they understand. I mean, I think some of this, though, is, you know, we're the bearer of the resource. You know, I, I smile when I look at even just the naming of some of these con- these businesses. A lot of them have the word construction in the name and they don't bloody build anything. The main contract businesses. The main contract businesses, you know. You know, you look across the piece as to who's got the word construction or building in their name. Yet they're the organisers. They they are a conduit between the client and the activities that take place on site. So one of my challenges is, is it's fantastic that you've given me a half million pound order that takes me six months to build, but I've still got to resource it. I've still got to find the labour materials, the plant, the prelim, you know, just a site manager. I don't, I, I directly employ my site managers. So direct employment means he's got a contract and he's got to work for 12 months, not just the six months that you've given me on your job. So, you know, and I'm responsible for that person. I'm responsible for their employment i'm responsible for making sure they get paid every month i'm responsible that he can pay his mortgage or she can pay her mortgage that you know and and it's what falls out of that resourcing piece because you're passing the resourcing piece to me because you haven't got continuity of work because if you had continuity of work would you be resourcing it yourself and actually doing the construction works back in the day you know some of the tier twos in greater manchester and around the northwest you know they were born out of family businesses Um, And we're working with some of them. They're born out of family businesses and they did used to do their own work. But that level of uncertainty has been passed down to them, which is why they subcontract out, which is why they pass it down, because they can't, you know, they can't employ hundreds of people on the basis of they haven't got the work either. Yeah. So this is just a problem of the industry, though, right? It's actually a problem, whether it's the main contractor who has it or the specialist contractor who has it. It's that lack of certainty that holds us entirely back, which again goes back to my point about focusing on research development. We're right at the back of the queue of that because we don't have the ability to say, I've got 10 years planned of order book. I can now plan how to improve my business, research development, investment, etc. Absolutely. And it, and it feels like further up the train, up the chain. So, you know, the clients who ultimately have that pipeline, you know, if you I think I still think there's challenges around that, you know, so we're in the social housing space. The mayor of Greater Manchester is, is, is talking about getting 3000 homes a year built in the social housing space, just 3000, like that barely touches the surface of, of what's needed. But trying to funnel that through, through the, the the sector and the registered providers and the people who, who, who've got access to the land and who facilitate, who, who ultimately have got the funding and the money to do that, because it is quite a political thing, thing, potentially the funding can be up and down. So whilst there might be a pipeline in place, it's never even certain, certainly in the public sector, because there's absolutely no commitment to this stuff actually going ahead. So it even goes beyond that. And then in the private space, you know, that that then moves on to, you know, people with private money, you know, want the best bang for the book. And so that tends to be more speculative and more and, and driven in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah, and more one-off or less long-termism in terms of how they're planning 
projects over a lot of time. But I think this is the problem, though, that we have as an industry and labouring that point. How you talked about the mayor of Greater Manchester, you've talked about large tier twos. How, and we're talking about the private sector as well now, as a subcontractor, how do you honestly think the world could be a better space, construction could be a better space? Like, how could those organisations say, this is the pipeline, because you still wouldn't have that guarantee? Like, is there a way that you picture construction working differently to help us all plan better? Not necessarily. Um, I, I think it, it is more about the attitude. You know, the sort of the word collaboration is flung about this industry. You know, sort of it's it, willy it, nilly. It's a, willy nilly, it's a buzzword. But you actually need to find. We probably need to find half a dozen clients at any one time that are aligned with this vision of properly trusting and collaborating with each other and not thinking that the grass is greener, not thinking that there's something better out there because you need to get to a point where, you know, what what is what is this really all about? You know, it, it, yes, it's about the commercials and the money and, you know, it is about what things cost, but what are the real value drivers? What's going to add value to the way that your projects are delivered? You know, being on time, I you know I've never been involved in a construction project that's ever delivered on time. I've not been involved in one. Now that is just tragic. Um, you know, if we can focus on, some of the really important stuff like money is important don't get me wrong but sometimes I think we're kind of everyone's too busy swatting the fly and the rhinos behind them the bigger piece to it all is what is best value you know delivery on time to quality to a quality standard then we start chucking in social value and procurement requirements and 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 there's a whole overlayer of what what does true value look like and what does true value ultimately back up to the client look like so I don't know that I've got a fix for it, but for me, it has to start small. It starts with people. It starts with building up connection. It starts with building up trust. I genuinely want to be helpful in this industry. And I think people think I'm bonkers. I think, you know, I'm not trying to sell you anything, really. I want to help solve your problems and I want to make what you're doing better so that it's a great I think result. most specialists do. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's kind of like that's what we're that's what we are, right? We're the experts in our niche field. We know how you can value engineer it, make it better on site, make better decisions for the greater good. But often hamstrung by the fear is how I felt our businesses were. You're not seen, you're not heard, you're not valued, you're not engaged with early enough, you're not asked to you know, you're not given a seat around the table. Yeah, we're the ones that have actually got all of that knowledge and that, like you say, and that expertise. Unpack it, use it. That's your value. We're the specialists. We're the specialists. Interesting, really interesting stuff. And um, I want to get into procurement, procurement routes, your experience actually with procurement and how that now leads into your own mindset. But we will do that right after this break, Andrew. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. 
Number two, it was too time consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So, Andrew, I want to um, pose you a question, really, about something that you said earlier. So, what you said earlier was, you know, that your dad said, come on, I've got about a million pounds worth of uh, procurement to be done. And if you can save your salary, it will all have made a lot of sense. It will all have been worthwhile. That is basically what I was told as a QS when I was training by my boss. He originally said, any QS should at least make back their salary on a given project or better. Um, Now, I say that with the fondness of uh, hindsight, right? When when I think about what was actually said to me and what that actually means. But I'm asking you this question because you were at one point before the show, uh, before the break, sorry, saying procurement should be focused on value, not cost. But then I want to talk to you about your experience because it sounds like you're dad said to you I want you to focus on cost well I suppose it was quantified by my salary at the point at that point which you know at that point was probably around two and a half percent of that million quid spend okay so I came in with the with the mindset though my immediate reaction and the way I looked at that wasn't I'll just ring everybody up and ask them to knock two and a half percent off the prices and then that's it, job done. My way of looking at it was, is there a better way to do this without squeezing the supplier? Because the value in the supply chain, certainly from where I sat, was additional things like, yes, price is important, but it was additional things like, do we get the delivery time slots that we need? When Do we get what we need when we want it? You know, can they deliver? You know, what credit terms do we get? You know, there's all additional value around just that small supply chain. So it was then a question of, is there a different way to skin this cat? Consolidating, if I gave people more business, was there more incentive to do something a bit different? Was there, you know, how did all of that pan out? So I didn't just come at this purely looking at price. I wanted to look at, I'm quite logical, quite systematic. So it was about systems, processes and the bigger picture in terms of what else are we getting from this supply chain and how can we maximise that? It could well have been that we went from 60, 30 days to 60 day payments with somebody, but that had a value, you know, there was still a value in in that way so that's how I approached it I think it's really interesting and I, I lean into my experience here so I, I was a building envelope subcontractor so at times specialist at times I would have been you know procuring SFS packages as part of my I'd be doing the curtain wall and I'd maybe doing a bit of SFS doors I would be doing sub subcontracting and 
I often felt that the way I went about procurement was totally different to how main contractors went about procurement with my package, largely because I felt it a little bit more keenly what it was like being treated the way you feel like you're being treated at the bottom of the food chain. How do you, and you talked then about being more strategic, thinking about the, the bigger picture. It's quite difficult for some main contract QSs to do that, I think, in that how can they get themselves out of their the box, let's say, or the tunnel vision of their project, which is their sole focus, when actually the entire main contract business should zoom out and say, we've got 10 projects, how can we manage our resource? How do you feel you manage your supply chain differently to main contractors? Do you feel like I felt that you have a softer approach, a better approach with your supply chain than you're receiving yourself? Yeah, because I think um, the way we run it as a business, we I don't think there is as much... Obviously, we have commercial people in our business. We have QSs, but they have some parameters within which to operate. So we have an established supply chain and they have to operate within that established supply chain. And I know main contractors will would probably say, well, we do that. We have approved subcontractors and this is how we do it. But there's always I still I feel like further up in main contractors, the commercial people almost have too much power, too much influence. There isn't that, there aren't the controls over what people think is happening in a main contractor's business and what's actually happening in a main contractor's business. So when I say that, I mean, you will, you know, there will be an approved subcontractors list and that's who, you know, um, pre-con are supposed to go out for prices and they'll have a process that says, if you priced it at tender, you'll then be, you know, you'll be invited back if we secure the job and it'll just be you guys. And But there's always rogues, isn't there, within that? There's always a new QS that comes along and he's got his favourite pet subby and somehow that subby ends up on the supply chain and pricing that job when they've won it. And they'll always end up being the cheapest and they'll always end up... So I, I try and frame our business so that the supply chain is at the heart of it and so that a lot of it is built up by relationships you know it isn't just about our supply chain knowing me and my sister because we own the business it's about opening up all of our staff to our supply chain because this is all about people right and this is you know business is about people you know everyone sort of in construction I think tends to and this is maybe the difference between men and women i we put people at the heart of our business so that is staff but that's also clients you know businesses people you look at construction projects they've been built by people like they didn't just happen they didn't just get magicked up so so for me going back to this procurement piece it's about developing those bonds of collaboration and trust through our business with our supply chain so that when our commercial people are making decisions around that half a million pound job over six months that one of our clients has kindly given us, you know, how do they go out and procure that? Well, they want to, they they are working with our supply chain that's already established because they know the rules of engagement. They know the people they're dealing with. They know they can trust them. They know that they're going to get deliveries on time. They know they're not going to get um, the labour complaining that plasterboard's never been delivered and so they want paying for the day because they've been stood for materials. But let me ask you, because yeah. at the top of the, the first half of the show, you said trust, collaboration, they're words that get thrown around willy-nilly. You, you yourself have just said 
so that's between the main contractor and you, right? Main contractor especially, you feel like on the on the jobs you hear the word trust, collaboration, we'll do all these amazing things, the world will be a fantastic place. That's exactly how I felt, by the way. Um, but you've then, yourself, just used exactly the same when you framed your relationship with your supply chain. You said, we've got bonds of collaboration and trust that uh, we know about. What is it that's different? This is kind of like the crux of the point to me. You're saying with your supply chain, you have, it's not willy-nilly collaboration and trust. It is bonds of collaboration and trust, but you don't feel that necessarily with your clients. Why is that? What's the difference? It's personal relationships. It's getting personal. It is about knowing these people that you're dealing with. It's letting them in. Some of our supply chain come to our dues. Some of our supply chain was at our Christmas due. You know, it's about letting them in. It's about knowing people. It's about not just knowing people professionally, but getting to know them personally. It's about having, you know, fulfilling those four cores of trust that exist. And and that is what it's Building about. Building your business around them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So your advice right now to main contractor QS, there'll be plenty of them listening, listening to this. Your advice to commercial directors at main contractors, again, there'll be plenty of them listening to this. What would you say to them about how to manage their supply chain? Pick two or three, trust them, give it a go. What is the worst that can happen? What is the worst that could happen? What if I don't trust them? Don't pick them then. What's the basis that you don't trust them? If you don't trust them, they shouldn't be on the, they shouldn't, you don't deal with them. Quantify that, measure it. Well, if they're not going to give me a price back? Well, again, it's all about service. I don't want to be in this position where I've got, yeah, I've got three. I go to the three. I'm going to tell you my perspective. Now, I go out to the three and you're one of them. You win another project and then I've only got two. And I don't want to be in a position where I've only got two. So I'm going to go out to six so that then I've got three or four to compare. That's how I feel. Yeah. I mean, how does a main contractor feel when they're one or six? You'll find most main contractors, if they're one or six, won't price the job, will they? So, you know, that that comes down the chain, doesn't it? Yeah. How can I guarantee that you're going to, if I say to you as a main contractor that you're one of three, how do I guarantee that you give me a price? Because I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Too often, I think that's where the lines get blurred and they think, oh, I'll go out to six. But they don't need to if they've built that bond of collaboration and trust with you. You're probably not getting a price as a QS because you've probably sent it out to them. You've probably sent eight jobs out to them. They've priced them for you. You've never given them any feedback. You've never given them a steer. You've never given them anything in the past. So they then get to a point where they go, we're getting nothing out of this. You know, to price stuff, as a specialist costs money that's never quantified anywhere you know it just sits as part of your overhead so you get to a point with some clients where you look at it and you go well what's in it for me it's the whiffing there's nothing in it for me I'm not even getting any feedback that I'm too dear and why I'm too dear and where I'm hanging out or whatever yeah I have to say it it does make me chuckle sometimes I I have with our business hundreds of main contractors hundreds of if not thousands of subcontractors who we are constantly engaging with on a daily basis and I will often speak to main contractors about their pipeline and ask them, you know, how's it going? What's coming up? What are you looking at? And they'll say, oh, you know, the blooming, you know, we priced this and we never heard anything back. It's so frustrating, you know, that this happens to us. And then at the same time, I will know full well that they've had 
50 subcontractors price for them and have probably communicated to 40 of to 10 of them out of out of the 50 and 40 are kind of sat there in the exact same position going haven't heard anything from this main contractor what the hell and it's uh, it always makes me smirk probably when you think that you, you hate the treatment to yourself but are unwilling to accept that you are treating further down the supply chain further down that food chain that we we're talking about people in exactly the same way that you're not enjoying being treated I don't think I do that though. I think, you know, you have to practice what you preach. I, I genuinely don't think I waste people's time. I don't think, I, I think I give feedback. I think because I'm so aware of how it affects us, I think that's how I operate. And and for me, there's a temperature, there's a temperature check as, as a QS sat there. How do I trust them? One of the things I remember, I don't know who said it to me. You check their but, temperature. Well, no, it, it, <laughs> you could do. But for me, it's, this person who's sat in front of me, do I trust them? Like, would I leave my mum or my kids with this person? Do I think they're genuine? <laughs> do I think their intentions are honourable? You know, it is that level of where do I sit with this person? And if you don't sit with them, well, then you don't trust them. There's something not right, isn't there? You know, it has to be down to that human factor. It has to be. So you as a specialist contracting business, those suppliers to you and those the, those contractors that sit below you so whoever they are your suppliers your uh, installers they are kind of like the lifeblood of your business aren't they that's how i always viewed it they really are absolutely essential to every single thing that you do and yes you may have two or three suppliers that you regularly engage with and they're well aware that there's two or three suppliers that you regularly engage with but because that relationship is consistent constant and almost forever improved and worked upon because you know that you need them to get you out of a hole at certain times it is a relationship that lasts for years right decades in many cases and that to me strikes me as the, as the real tangible difference in mentality because they're so important to us as specialists we know that they are everything to the success of our project but it's funny that in many cases not all cases i don't want to paint all main contractors as this but in many cases for main contractors the, the specialist is absolutely critical to the success of their project but it's that difference in mentality almost isn't it that real close uh feel that you have with your supply chain which you're not feeling that you have with your clients which is strange isn't it it is. It's almost like, you know, we are disposable to a point. That's how it feels. And to me, it's a feeling. Um, but in the face of potentially what we've coming down, got, down, got coming down the track in 2023, 20, you know, there's talk of up to 6,000 business failures in construction this year. Now, that is going to impact, even on a contracted pipeline, that is going to impact massively. So the other side of this is sometimes further up the chain, you can be sort of, you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you're not careful. Um, I think that if you are treating your supply chain as a disposable sort of piece of rubbish to be thrown away sometimes, that's how it seems, then you're never going to foster... It's amazing that that's how you feel. Yeah. yeah. Honest, honestly, I mean, if if I was a main contractor listening to this and knowing the business that you have built, Angela, that you run, just hearing you describe yourself as disposable 
rubbish almost as that that's how you feel i think that, that anyone who's listening who is at a main contractor should hopefully listen to that and think surely that's not how they feel but i can assure you from my experience and it's amazing to hear you say that 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 is how quite often you do feel and that's one of the main problems right um, and that feeling is coming from maybe three years ago from something that happened specifically in the pandemic. And you never know, those people who were involved might be listening and they know who they are. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if 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 we don't get to grips with this, if you listen, you can, I just look at it and go, you can't wander through life trusting no one. So just give trust a go. Like, what is the worst that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is someone breaks your trust and it doesn't work out. And you're going to be no worse off than where you are now because because you don't trust, people are breaking your trust anyway. So you're actually, you're going to be in no worse. You could be in a much better position though if it does work out. And chances are, it will work out. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I feel like specialists, which is what you are championing that I say, and I we, we actually call contractor specialists in our business so i don't know why it's not rolling off my tongue so much but we have always i felt go into projects thinking how can i impact this you know architectural design this main contractors program how can we bring something to it with our expertise that improves the overall picture and if if you go into it with that mentality we want to help we want to improve things surely the whole project can be better but it is about i think it's you said that bond of trust i think that is that's the difference you can throw around trust all you like but it's that and i i know i saw it in the business that i was in it's where you know that you can pick up the phone and that person knows you and will support you and you can absolutely trust that there is a result on the end of the line and that's what specialists want to give to main contractors if the relationship is there my final question for you um, Angela, we've raced through this show, but I guess it's a, quite an open-ended one, but I'm interested to hear what your view would be. What is the single way that you would like to change main contractors, if you could? I think it is this accessibility. I think what, you know, one of the things I've started to do sort of post-pandemic is I pick up the phone as an, as an MD of a specialist I pick up the phone. One of the first things I want to do when we begin to engage with somebody, even if we're just pricing work for them, just, you know, like we're, we're not even, we're not even been given a contract. We're not fulfilling anything. First thing I do is pick up the phone to their MD, introduce myself. And I say, the crazy thing about construction and the way that it generally operates is that we potentially will only talk and be reactive when the shit hits the fan. And that is absolutely the wrong way to go about conducting business. The best way to conduct business is for me to speak to you up front, for us to develop a relationship and for us to understand your business, for you to understand our business and what we're capable of delivering and for us to work together on a common path and a common goal. Because if you successfully deliver, deliver projects that we've helped you on, you can see where that ends up. So for me, it is that openness. It's about... You know, and the amount of people trying to get a hold of some of these MDs, the amount of people that won't speak to me is frightening. And so for me, it's that accessibility, that openness, that candidness, you know. So I, I would change that. I think the problem is, is some of these, certainly tier ones, they're so big. There's so many people to, to kind of engage with. How do you go about doing that? Um, 
so yeah i would change i change that element of kind of accessibility and openness um i also would just it's something i've banged on about for the last 20 years but it is that earlier engagement just make some decisions earlier take the risk that just pick someone run with them get them involved earlier sit them around a table because they're the ones who are specialists who can bring stuff to the table that you don't know and that will ensure a better success of your project if you let them in on that note, and I'll, I will say this, I asked you for one way you change main contracts. You've given me two. We've got a bonus one there. So I'm very, very, very happy with that. Um, it's been good for me to reflect on how I've felt many times. It's been great talking to you, um, Angela. And the authenticity and honesty that we talked about at the top of the show is something that has uh, come through in volume. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to put your details, Mansell Builds details, on the podcast description. Thank you for coming on the show, Angela. Thanks for having me. All my pleasure. And as always, everybody listening, we will be back next week. Have a great week ahead. I'll speak to you soon.